Father God, you have spoken in your Son, and we pray that this morning we would hear that word and we would rejoice because of what it means for us. So help us to listen, we pray, in Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the 21st of March, 2021, today, big day. It is a big day. For various reasons, you might be thinking I'm saying it's a big day. Um, the census, I think, is happening today, big day. Is it the first day of spring? It's technically this is the first day of spring? M- maybe, yeah, yeah around, around here, we're beginning spring, we're entering spring. Um, is sort of, we're getting to those kind of anniversaries of things of the pandemic, the kind of one year on since, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. As a Welshman, today is a big day. Wales, of course, won the Six Nations, didn't get the Grand Slam, which is very sad. But at least, you know, we, we still won the tournament, which is more than anyone else can say. Um, so lots of reasons why today is a big day. But the reason why I had in mind the 21st of March 2021 as a big day is because tonight on BBC, we have the start of season six of Line of Duty. Anyone else a Line of Duty fan here? Is it just, yes, we've got a few. We've got a few. Good. For those of you who don't know what Line of Duty is about, it follows the escapades of some plucky anti-corruption police officers, their mission in life, according to the words, and I'm going to try the accent, of their chief superintendent, Ted Hastings, is nicking burnt coppers. Nicking burnt coppers. That's what they're about arresting corrupt police in case you couldn't understand that was an attempt at a Belfast accent but there we go arresting corrupt policemen and women is what they're about and so to get ready for this Abby and I have been re-watching the previous seasons just because intricate plot details and you know we're slightly slow on this so we need to we need to watch it again to realize what's going on and in one of the previous series there is a lady police officer who is a victim of a serious injustice She's wrongly charged with something and actually ends up going to prison and various things. But as she's released, she's seeking redress for her wrongs. And she has a line that, for me, really really kind of captured a lot of what I want to be saying in a kind of negative way in this sermon today. And the line was this, I want justice and I don't care how unjustly I get it. I want justice and I don't care how unjustly I get it. Can you hear what she's saying? She wants to be found just. She wants to be found in the right and to get all the blessing and approval that goes along with that, but she doesn't care if that is reached by an unjust way. We all long for words of justification. We all long for approval that says we've done something worthwhile, ultimately that we have been worthwhile. And the world around us teaches us that the word that is definitive for that is, well, it's our own word. As long as I've done right by me, that's okay. And yet, just a moment's reflection will show us that we don't even live like that, do we? We're so desperate for words of approval from others. We're so swayed by their assessment, by their words which are spoken in relation to us. And it's very easy to be affected and unsettled by what someone else thinks or says. And it needn't be words of judgment that affect us. Just think over the last year, the power of words to, well, uh, shock, to strike fear, stay at home second wave variant i mean honestly a year ago who thought that the word variant would be so loaded with terror and yet it actually kind of is isn't it or words that stir hope vaccination record numbers lockdown easing these words have a lot of power but ultimately the word that finally matters is a word of judgment it's a finding in relation to justice 
It's God's word, either of justification or of condemnation. He speaks the word that makes all the difference, which seems fair. He spoke the word that brought all things into being, so it seems right that he gets to judge how we've done with what he's given us, and therefore he should have the defining word for our lives. And that, in, in one sense, should unsettle us, because it means it doesn't lie in our hands. We don't get to set the standard. We don't get to put the spin on things that make us turn out all right. God speaks the word from outside that judges you and judges me. And the problem with that for people like us is this. Let me read you a verse from the book of Proverbs. This is Proverbs 17, verse 15. This is one of the Proverbs in in the book of wise sayings. And it says this, acquitting the guilty or perhaps justifying the wicked and condemning the innocent... So two halves, justifying the wicked, condemning the innocent. The Lord detests them both. I want justice. I want approval. I want blessing. And I don't care how unjustly I get it. That's about as far from the biblical picture as you can get. God detests unjust findings. He hates a finding of righteous for those who are wicked and ungodly. He hates the condemnation of the innocent. And for God, being just isn't some add-on to his character that's a bit sort of take or leave. For God to be just is exactly the same as it is for God to be God. They're one and the same thing. He's not like us. He can't suspend bits of his character. He can't chop bits off like we might cut our hair. We're still the same person. He can't cut bits off himself and stay the same. So God cannot ignore his justice when it comes to the act of judging. And why is it a problem then that God is that way? Well, because of all that has been said in Romans so far. If you listen to the sermon from last week, you'll realize it's really not a pretty picture. But it is summed up in verse 23 of Romans chapter 3, our passage for today. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Now, remember what Tom said last week. That doesn't mean that kind of horizontally we ignore the fact that some people do worse things to other human beings than others. We don't relativize the seriousness of some sins when we say this kind of thing. But we also need to remember that that horizontal measurement isn't the only one that we're dealing with. We think vertically as well. Against God, all have sinned. And actually, speaking about God's glory and falling short of it is a a beautiful and terrifying way of speaking about sin. We fall short in glorifying him, and so we fall short of enjoying his glory forever. God's glory is the infinite beauty of his own being. It's the manifestation, the making known of his perfect life, the infinite fullness of joy and love that simply is who he is. And humanity was invited to enjoy that glory for themselves, to reflect that glory in their own lives and then reach a blessed rest in his. But Paul says, we have rejected it. We've preferred to switch created things in the place of God's glory, and we've believed the lie that God is not the most real and most wonderful thing that can be known. We've said no to God's glory having a place in our lives, and so God in his justice says that his his glory has no place for us. 
And we saw it in, in that reading from Isaiah 64, verse 6 of that reading, if you wanted to make a note of it. As it comes to the judgment of God, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. They are stained by sin. They cannot stand the fire of God's perfect judgment. And so if we are tempted to compare, to look horizontally, this standard of falling short of God's glory reminds us all have sinned. One commentator puts it like this, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory, but so are you. They may stand at the bottom of a mine and you may crest the top of an alp, but both of you are as little able to touch the stars. So what hope is there? God will not justify the wicked. He will not justify the ungodly if he's judging them by their own state. And yet we read in our passage, we can be justified freely as a gift, as a lavish, gracious offering from God to us. In Romans chapter 4 verse 5, Paul tells us God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the wicked. Well, how do you get from that verse in Proverbs through the damning charter of universal condemnation and sin that we read about last week to the point where God has made a way whereby he can justify the ungodly and do so justly? Well, this passage is all about that. The possibility of the perfect judge finding us righteous, a finding that means life and blessing and joy forevermore, and it is not achieved unjustly. It is achieved with justice. Well, how is that possible? Well, the answer in one sense lies in the first word of the passage, the significant disjunctive. I put it that way because if I said here we have to really enjoy the big but of Scripture, then that sounds slightly irreverent because Scripture is actually full of big buts that are glorious. What do I mean by that? Disjunctives, remember, buts and yets. Those movements in Scripture where it says this is the problem with humanity, disaster, destruction, sin, but God. So in, in, you can go through Genesis All of the world was wicked, deserving in judgment, but Noah had grace in the eyes of God. The floods have come and destroyed the world, but God remembers his covenant with Noah. We saw it in that passage in Isaiah 64. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Will you stay silent forever, O God? Our sin, our sin, all of this problem, yet you get to verse 8, yet, O Lord, you but you, God. These big buts in Scripture have an enormous significance. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, we are dead in in transgressions and sins, liable to God's destruction, children of wrath, but God. And we have it here. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. In fact, we know that we are all sinners but now. What, it, what does that but resemble? What does it signify? It means that God breaks the heavens and comes down and does it for us. That's the language of Isaiah 64, and that's the language here. A righteousness of God has been revealed. What is this righteousness of God? Well, there's a few ways this needs to be understood. Firstly, it's his essential justice and righteousness. He is just, he acts in accordance with his own perfection. It is also a righteousness, meaning he, he saves his people just as he promised. 
He is righteous to fulfill his covenant promises of blessing, to forgive sins and make a way of salvation. And also it's a righteousness of God in the sense that he has produced a human record of a perfect love of God and his law that can be given to those of us who believe and upon which we can be found righteous. It's clear it is apart from law. It is not through our own efforts or our own works. King David recognizes this in Romans chapter 4. Paul cites Psalm 32 and, and says, how wonderful it is to be justified apart from works, these works of the law. It is about moral effort. And Paul is saying, you don't get this righteousness through being a better person or trying harder. No, this righteousness comes another way. It is promised in the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, but promise has now found fulfillment. Now, in terms of showing how this passage explains why God can justify the ungodly, I searched far and wide, high and low, to, to capture all of the dense material that's going on here, and I found the most theologically sophisticated way to get through this was to draw inspiration from Colin Buchanan. You know, the Australian uh, singer-songwriter does um, really great kid songs, and you may well be familiar with his song, Big Words That End in Shun. Do you know that song, Big Words That End in Shun? Well, I'm going to use that as a bit of a way of trying to make sense of what's going on in this passage. There are five words that end in shun that I want to draw out. Now, you might be looking at this going, Christopher Stead, those are very special glasses. I can't see five words that end in shun in this passage. They're there. Let, let me draw them out for you to try and make sense of what Paul is saying here. So big words that end in shun, that means God justifies us, and he does so justly. And the first one, and the most important one, and as a word it's not in here, but as an idea, it's the only thing that makes sense of this whole passage. It's the word incarnation. Incarnation. Why? Because this is all about Jesus Christ. And incarnation tells us who Jesus Christ is. Notice Paul says everything revolves around him. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified freely through redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We need to know who Jesus is in order to understand why this is possible. Now, it may be that this is the point in the sermon, after I've made this point, that you just need to stop listening and have a think about what I'm going to say. Hopefully you won't. Hopefully you'll carry on. But I need to make the point that we are not, this life does not come to us through our relationship to a neat little system but comes to us through our relationship to this person, Jesus Christ. He is our hope and our help. Incarnation means in flesh-ation. It's talking about how the Word of God, the Word spoken eternally by the Father, the Son, took on human flesh, that's the in flesh-ation bit, and became man. You see, if we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, then the only hope of salvation is that the glory of God comes down to where we fell, and that is exactly what happened in Jesus. God the Son took on human flesh and took upon himself our burdens. Paul says, God, um, sorry, Jesus is God, blessed above all forever, became the son of David according to the flesh, a man in the line of kings to become a servant. He took our burdens of loving God perfectly he received the curse for breaking God's law. He received the pain and sorrow of a fallen world. He took it all on himself. This word spoken eternally by the Father in the very being of God became a word spoken in time. 
And in this word, spoken in a seemingly insignificant life in the, middle of e- in the Middle East, we actually have a word that drowns out all competing words. This is the one to listen to. He is the one to listen to. He had the words of his father ringing in his ears, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so at every moment, Jesus Christ, God the Son, was working out in a human life a perfect love that fulfilled the law, and so showed himself to be more fully human than anyone else ever has been. He was given up and gave himself up to death, suffering the curse of the law. And in and by his resurrection, when he burst the bonds of death and shame, God announced, this one is righteous. Not righteous as God, though he is, but perfectly righteous as a man. That's who Jesus Christ is for Paul. So when he says Jesus Christ, that's what we need to understand him to mean. The son who became a man so that men and women could become children of God. And God holds Jesus Christ out to you this morning and says, here is wonder and beauty and grace and love and power and righteousness. Here in Jesus Christ is the good news of the power of God for your salvation. He is all we need. And so I'll say again, I hope you're going to stay with me for the rest of the sermon, but it may be that this morning you need to just stop here and cry out to the Lord, show me Jesus. Let me see his wonder for myself. If you're going to carry on with me, let's move to our next word ending in shun. This one is in the passage. Happy days. This is the word redemption. Did you see that in verse 24? Redemption. Redemption means purchase, the buying back of something which has been lost. It means deliverance at a cost. And that's what Jesus did. Born as a man under the law, he offered himself to purchase favor and purchase our freedom. There was a price to be paid to enjoy the glory of God the Father forever, and it was faithful obedience to his loving law. And in our failure, over which Paul has spent quite a lot of time laboring, we put ourselves into a debt we could never pay. We owe ourselves in death as payment for the breach. And that is why incarnation, that first shun word, is so vital. It's Jesus' blood that Paul is focusing on here. He speaks about Jesus' blood. This is how we are saved. Why? Because as Paul says in Acts chapter 20, Jesus' blood is God's blood. Now, God hasn't got a body, so don't think of it blood in that sense, but because Jesus is no one other than God the Son, so his blood is God's blood. Now, if that doesn't make any sense to you, hopefully this will. It simply means that the reason why Jesus can redeem us and pay the price is because he and his blood are infinitely valuable. The redemption, the buying back and buying freedom was provided by God in Jesus Christ. This is why Isaiah could say to God's people in Isaiah chapter 55, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the water, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. How does that make sense? There is a price, and it is costly. A purchase needs to be made, and people in infinite debt cannot afford it. But... In Jesus Christ, we are told, God has met the price. Someone else has said, we bring our poverty to a transaction already completed. So, incarnation, redemption, 
Next one, sacrifice of atonement. Um, okay, stretching it with that one. An older word for sacrifice of atonement is propitiation. If you know the Colin Buchanan song, you'll have known this one already. That's what a sacrifice of atonement is, and you're thinking neither of those words make sense to me. To propitiate, to atone, is to turn away someone else's anger and have them treat you well. Essentially, that's what it means. And that's how Paul describes Jesus' death on the cross. It takes the full force of God's judgment expressed in human anger and completely extinguishes the claim of justice against the wrongdoer. Now, in non-Christian pagan religions, propitiation was sometimes used as the word to describe how people made their, their kind of petty idols happy with them, to manipulate them into being kind and hold their anger at bay. All kinds of things were thrown at this God to, to kind of make them happy and stave off disaster. And the thing we need to recognize is the Bible is not embarrassed about using this kind of language of atonement and propitiation to make sense of the cross, but it is quite different from that other way of thinking about it. Firstly, it's God's work. God says in Leviticus, I myself have provided the creature, the blood, by which propitiation is made. In pagan religions, the worshiper has to provide the sacrifice and simply hope for the best. Not so with God. He says, here it is. Trust me, this will work. Secondly, God isn't like the angry little men that sometimes Um, how they appear in those other systems. He doesn't have a fluctuating emotional life. When we speak about God's anger, we're speaking about his holy, fiery perfection expressed against sin. And it's expressed as fire and judgment. He doesn't stand there with a red face and steam coming out of his ears until he gets enough pudding or human blood to placate him. His justice is perfect It is entirely justified, and therefore, because it's not like human emotion, it is entirely terrifying. But Jesus offers propitiation. His death perfectly meets the claims of infinite justice. We say no to God's glory, but God's glory decided to take upon the consequences. The reality is, on that cross, it should have been me. Not just for a few hours on a Friday, not just for a weekend, but forever. And yet Jesus Christ said no to my no and hung in my place. Fourth shun word, justification. We've already started getting towards this. The final verse here, God is the one who justifies those who believe. To justify is to declare in the right. To speak that all-determining word that brings blessing and eternal life. It's not only to declare that someone is not guilty that there hasn't been enough evidence to prove their guilt and they're somehow getting acquitted. It means they have actually kept the positive demands of the law. They have lived to the glory of God in every part of our lives. I want justification and I don't care how unjustly I get it may well seem to be the proper response if we are to be justified. Why is that? Because whilst it's the verdict we want, it's not the one we deserve. You can see why it seems like if we're going to have God justify us, then he's got to do so unjustly because living for God's glory without fail does not describe any one of us. Well, again, this is why we need incarnation, a life of perfect, unfailing love for God as Father and neighbor as ourselves was only done by God the Son in his human life. But wonder of wonders, he did it for you, and he did it for me. 
God is willing to count his perfect life as ours, to accept his death as payment for our sin and his life as payment for glory. In Jesus' resurrection, God was essentially speaking the word righteous over him. And if we are in him, God was speaking it over us too. That is the definitive word for our whole life. Sins forgiven and glory restored. We fall short, but we are brought home by the one who never fell. Final shun word. Demonstration. Yeah, I know, tenuous, but hey, it's there in the passage. God did this to demonstrate, verse 25, his justice. God did this to demonstrate that he can justify the ungodly, the wicked, you and me, and do so whilst remaining just. It says in the past he passed over sins, and the the sacrifices for the Old Testament saints were only ever signs pointing forward to and participating in Jesus' death. They were signs, but they were never sufficient. Now in the present time, God, God lavishes grace and still upholds his justice because of Jesus. In all of this, there is a demonstration of his perfect glory. So we have that demonstration. We have redemption, the price is paid, propitiation, judgment has been met, justification. God has been glorified through obedience so he can say the word righteous all because of incarnation, because of Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fear. Now, just to add one more shun word, I I said five, I've slipped in six. What are you going to do? The final word, implication, or perhaps better, so what-ification. Um, is our final shun word. So many things follow for our lives, of course, from this. Humility. All have sinned and fall short of glory. We can't look down on anyone, can we? So we have open arms with the gospel. There is no one beyond the reach of this grace. We have urgency with the gospel. There is no hope without it. We are committed to seeking justice for others. Look how much God cares for justice and the rest, of the rest of the book of Romans kind of unfolds how being in Christ makes all the difference to being in London in 2021. So I won't go on to, into that now, but I just want to finish with three words, and then we're done. Believe, rest, and rejoice. First, believe. Did you see how many times the word faith or belief comes up in this passage? Now, faith isn't like a little bit of work that's kind of the start of a whole train of obedience that means we're transformed and God justifies us on the basis of this change that has happened within us. For Paul, faith and works are two different categories. We don't do anything because there's nothing we can do. Faith means receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ as our only hope. You don't have to have all the dots joined. You just need to know that the picture is of Jesus Christ. Receive him. Hold on to him. Find life in him. It's free for you, justified freely by his grace as a gift, received through faith alone. And let's face it, this has been a year in which everything has kind of been feeding up here, and we have been trying desperately to keep our head above water. Well, let this word drop like a balm upon you today. The good news really is this good. 
Believe in Jesus Christ and you will find life. Secondly, rest. Christians, we need to be applying this to our heart. It's not like this message is something that happens at the start of the Christian life and then you go on to better things. Paul says at the start of Romans, I want to come and preach the gospel to you. I want to come and and tell you this again and again and again. It's that good. We need to keep hearing this gospel. It's so easy to get caught up in the competing words that surround us and find our stability lost. Well, stability really is ours if we belong to Jesus. We are freed from needing the approval and justification of others. You can have all the stadia in all the world filled with all the people cheering your name and praising your accomplishments, and still that sound would be but a dull, pathetic whimper compared to the sound of this word that God Almighty declares over you if you are in Jesus Christ. Righteous, my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. No words that you will go out there and hear can compete with that. And also, we've heard a lot about light at the end of the darkness. And I don't want to downplay all these things. You can sometimes use the gospel to say, well, nothing outside matters. Of course it does. I can't wait for the vaccine to have its effect and for lockdown to lift. What a great day that will be. But light at the end of the darkness, for Christians, we know the ultimate darkness has already been blown apart by the light of Jesus Christ. So whatever words or fears have been dominating your life for the past year, whatever words and hopes you're pinning the months to come on, please this morning hear the word God speaks in Christ. Righteous, beloved, that defines you. That defines your life. It defines your death as something you don't need to fear anymore. It gives you a hope nothing can remove. Final word, promise. Rejoice. No eye has seen, no ear has heard anything like this. Our God can justify the ungodly and do so justly because of what he has spoken and done in Jesus Christ. Please let that lead you to worship. Let that lead you to praise and adore our wonderful God. Another word from the book of Isaiah. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forever. Amen.